We are on the 12th of 13 classes on uh, defending the faith, and my hope is that you'll leave this series of classes uh, bolstered in your faith and better equipped to give a reason for the hope that you have within you, uh, particularly to your non-Christian family and friends and co-workers. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, thank You for the power of Your cross and the power of Your love that overcame our sin, that while we were yet sinners, uh, Christ died for us. And as a result of our salvation, we can love others and follow this command that we have just sung, uh, to love as He has loved. So help us to do that, we pray. And we pray that You would help us to think properly about the problem of evil, not an easy topic to tackle. Um, in our thinking and in our conversations with people, but a very important one. So please help us to think rightly about you, and um, and uh, we pray that your Spirit would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a introduction from the book um, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis um, tells about his former way of thinking. Not many years ago, Lewis says, when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have been something like this. Look at the universe that we live in. Okay, so keep in mind, this is a man who is now a believer, but before was an atheist, but this is his response to why he doesn't believe in God. By far the greatest part of the universe consists of empty space, completely dark and unimaginably cold. The bodies which move in this space are so few and so small in comparison with the space itself that even if every one of them were known to be crowded as full as it could uh, as it could hold with perfectly happy creatures, it would still be difficult to believe that life and happiness were more than just a byproduct to the power that made the universe. And what is it like while it lasts, this life? It is so arranged that all the forms of it can live only by preying upon one another. In the lower forms, this process entails only death. But in the higher forms, there appears a new quality called consciousness, which enables it to be attended with pain. The creatures cause pain by being born and live by inflicting pain, and in pain they mostly die. In the most complex of all the creatures, man, yet another quality appears, which we call reason, whereby he is enabled to foresee his own pain, which henceforth is preceded with acute mental suffering, and to foresee his own death while keenly desiring permanence. It also enables man, by a hundred ingenious contrivances, to inflict a great deal more pain than they themselves could have done on one another and on the irrational creatures." This power they have exploited to the full. Their history, that is man's history, mankind's history, is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror, with just sufficient happiness interposed to give them, while it lasts, an agonized apprehension of losing it, and when it's lost, the poignant misery of remembering. Every now and then they improve their condition a little, and what we call a civilization appears. But all civilizations pass away, and even while they remain, they inflict peculiar sufferings of their own, probably sufficient to 
uh, of their own people, that is, probably sufficient to outweigh what alleviations they may have brought to the normal pains of man. That our own civilization has done so, no one will dispute. That our own civilization will pass away like all its predecessors is surely probable. Even if it should not, what then? The race is doomed. Every race that comes into being in any part of the universe is doomed. For the universe, they tell us, is running down and will sometime be a uniform infinity of homogeneous matter at a low temperature. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else there's a spirit who is indifferent to good and evil, or else there's an evil spirit. The problem of pain. It's his book. Now, he goes on to explain that there actually are good reasons why God would allow such things and how God can use those things. And that's kind of what we want to talk about. But that is the type of thinking that you're going to come into contact with. And some of that may even have resonated in your own mind this morning as you're thinking through these things. How is it that all of life can be, can be uh, so, <coughs> so, um, so hit with pain? Intermittent pain and, and even the, the sense that pain's coming and, and uh, pain and death and so on. How can this be? So let's think about first, what is the problem of evil? What is the problem of evil? If we're going to try to uh, answer the, the claims that come against God with regard to the problem of evil, we need to first think about what it is. And it usually comes in the form of several kinds of questions like, is there really a good God? If there's so much evil in the world, is there really a good God, right? Like, why, why allow Hitler, the, Hol- the Holocaust, Stalin, Mao, Columbine, September 11th, the endless resolution to the Mideast co- uh, conflict? Okay, it comes in those kinds of co- questions. Or it comes in a phrase like this, I can't possibly believe in a God who al- would allow X to happen. Or there's some kind of a personal um, some kind of a personal tragedy loss uh, physical ailment or it comes like this if God can really do anything why doesn't he get rid of evil or it's not fair that people suffer unjustly so those kinds of questions are what what uh, we're trying to think about today with regard to the problem of evil, they really kind of summarize or exemplify what the problem of evil is. Here's how John Stuart Mill summarizes these questions in a philosophical way. He says, "If God, it's on the top of your, sh- your sheet there. If God desires there to be evil in the world, then He's not good. If He does not desire there to be evil, yet evil exists, then He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Therefore, if evil exists, God is either not loving or not all-powerful." Evil casts a shadow over God's love and power. There's, this is no small dilemma, and answers to it are exceedingly difficult. So what is at, at stake as we consider this question, uh, at least to unbelievers in their minds, is that God cannot be both all-powerful and all-good and have evil exist. And so this is the, the problem that we'll try to reconcile from the Scriptures this morning. And, and, and our conclusion will be, 
that despite evil in the world, God is all powerful and He is all good. Okay, so we're going to we're going to confirm three main truths today. God is all powerful, God is all benevolent, and evil exists. We don't know how those relate, we don't know how um how that is possible. We don't know how it came into being fully, but but we certainly cannot deny those other things. So let's first think about some common solutions to this problem of evil, uh, also known in philosophy as a theodicy. Yes? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's look at um, these five common solutions to the problem of evil. First, evil is just an illusion. It's not real. Um, it's it's simply a matter. It's just simply an issue of mind over matter. We just need to kind of get this out of our mind that it's evil and just kind of um, have this Pollyannic type existence that everything's good and and um, puppy dogs and roses and that sort of thing. Uh, yet the scriptures would deny that sort of idea. Um, Ephesians one says that God works out all things after the counsel of His will, and so we cannot separate, we'll talk more about this, but we can't separate a God who is sovereign over good things and a God who is sovereign over evil things, okay? As if God is only sovereign over the good and all the evil are out of control for Him. He, he doesn't have any ability to to uh, interact with those things. So, um, so that's, I think that's a, an incorrect way of looking at this problem. Secondly, Evil is just good in disguise, similar to the previous one. But um, some people argue actually from Romans 8.28, and wrongly so, that all things are good. It's not that evil is here. It's this evil that you have in your life, that's not evil. That's actually good. Um, but that's not what Romans 8.28 says. Remember, Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good. Or as Genesis 50.20 says, they meant it for evil or you know, Joseph's brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He brought about good through the evil. Um, it's not that there is no evil. So, there, uh, we have to acknowledge that, that evil does really exist. It's not just good in disguise. Um, and, uh, and that sort of idea really obscures the difference between good and evil. So the first two really deny the reality of evil. It just says it, you know it's not really there, or it's it's just something else. It's just a, a, a cloak. The third one is dualism. <coughs> third response, dualism. So here you have two powerful beings, God and Satan, in this in this view. Okay, God is yeah, God is over the good, and and Satan is over the evil. So anytime evil happens, it's all Satan. Anytime that good happens. It's all God. And near the two shall meet. So it's kind of like this huge chess match going on um, in, in the, um, the spiritual realm. 
if that is the case, then then uh, how can God be truly all powerful? I mean, that's the question that the that the guy in the front there, John Stuart Mill, is asking. How can he be all powerful if this evil exists? Um, because if you have an all powerful God and yet he he doesn't really have control over evil, how can we be sure that he's actually going to win over evil? And so it, I think it fails logically because God cannot be omnipotent if he is not omnipotent over evil. And, of course, it's got a huge flaw in that it assumes that Satan and God are equal, equals in some way, right? Like, as if Satan can actually come to the level of God. He is not even close. Psalm 115 says that our God is in the heaven and He does whatever He pleases. Job 42 says, no plan of yours can be thwarted. And so, um, again, that, that solution does not work. Fourth solution for the problem of evil is that we must have evil in order to appreciate good. Have you ever heard this argument before? And this even Christians can, can use this sort of one. You know, you can't appreciate health until you understand sickness. Has you experienced this personally? I mean, I, I certainly do appreciate health more when I'm sick. Or, um, you know, you, you, appreciate, you appreciate having enough when you're poor, right? Um, so there is an appreciation that comes. And so this argument says, well, you can't really understand good. You can't really understand it until you first experience evil. Um, the problem with that is God understands good. right? And God has never done any evil, been part of any evil. And so He doesn't have to be able to appreciate good by experiencing evil first. So I think, again, that's a false... Uh, a false solution. It's it's poor logic being used to try to explain the problem of evil. Fifth, evil is just relative. You know, there's no such thing really as good or evil. Only how you feel about it matters. It's real. Evil is just about social convictions. If our if our society didn't determine what evil was, we wouldn't feel so badly about these things. You know, so we would see these things that other people see as evil. We would see them as yeah, okay. That's fine. You know, it, it's but the problem with that obviously is that it it kind of pushes ourselves over into the postmodern idea that we can't really have any absolutes. We can't really know the difference between truth and error. And um, there is no real right and wrong. It's just how we perceive these things. There's no standard by which we can determine whether or not this thing is evil or not. And yet the scriptures clearly tell us that there are things that are evil. So we can't buy into that fifth solution either. So these do not sufficiently answer the problem of evil because they do not offer consistently what God has revealed in His Word um, and regarding within uh, the reality in which we live. And so the problem remains a mystery and a perplexing one. How could evil originate with a a good God? How could evil continue with a good God? What is the solution. And I have to be honest, we don't have a solution in the sense that we can make perfect sense of everything that happens. You know, why do people die? Why do... I mean, we we have some answers for some of these things, but we don't have ultimate answers. Like, why is there injustice that happened to infants or babies or, you know, young mothers or people in another country? But what I can do, although I can't offer you a perfect solution for all of your questions about evil, 
I can provide a biblical argument for the problem. So, um, part of the challenge is that we don't have all of the information that we need to make a choice. And part of that is because we're finite. We don't understand everything. And the other part is God hasn't revealed to us the answer um, to why evil exists or how it came into existence. For example, let me give you a situation where a woman uh, has some packages in her car and she needs to get them out. The problem is the car is parked and locked and the doors are closed and the windows are sealed and yet she gets the packages out. How does she do it? She doesn't use the key. She doesn't. The trunk's closed too. It's a convertible. Yeah, sunroof. Yeah, right. So when you have that fourth piece, you know that fourth piece. You know the car's parked and locked. The windows are closed and sealed. The woman got the packages out. Well, how could she get the packages out? And the fourth one is the car is a convertible. We understand now, but but listen to these now. Okay, in relation to that, God is sovereign. We're going to show that from the scriptures here in just a second. God is perfectly just and righteous. Evil is entirely within the sovereignty of God. Okay, that's like the package. She somehow got the packages out. Evil somehow is within the sovereignty of God. So here's the fourth one. For her, it was the car was a convertible. For us, we don't know. It hasn't been revealed to us how this works together, but we know those first thing, three things are true. We know that, that God is perfectly sovereign that He is perfectly just, and that that He is sovereign over evil. So, let's look at this in the Scriptures. Can I have some volunteers to read? I'll, I'll need several of you, so raise your hand when you're ready and I'll give you a verse. Eric, Psalm 115.3. Paul, Ephesians 1.11. Gail, Psalm 33.15. Mike, Manter, Exodus 4.21. Bill, James 1.13 and 14. Margaret, Habakkuk 1.13. We'll give you some time to look that one up. You're the hardest one. Sarah, thank you. Romans 9.19-21. Jennifer, Genesis 50.20. That'll be good for now. Alright. So, we want to affirm all these things about God, what the, script, what the Scriptures confirm about God, before we start to try to answer this question because what can happen is we automatically turn to attributing evil to God when we shouldn't. So we want to understand what the Scriptures say about God before we make a choice about uh, how to respond to this problem of evil. So, number one there on your handout, um, these are truths that we cannot deny because they are clear in the Scriptures. And when I'm giving these verses here, these are just simply examples of what the rest of the Scriptures affirm. So, I don't want you to think, okay, well, this is the only verse in the Bible that, that says this. Um, I, I only gave you one, but there are many more um, that affirm these same principles. So, number one, God is the all-powerful governor of His universe. Psalm 115.3. <laughs> okay, this is one I quoted earlier, and then I also mentioned, I, I often think of immediately Job 42, when Job's like, how could how could you do all this, God? I mean, I haven't done anything. I've been innocent. 
and God talks to him from chapters 38 to 42 and says, listen, where were you when the earth was made? You know, who's holding up the stars in the sky? Who's allowing these goats to give birth? I mean, are are you there to help take care of them? Are Are you out in the ocean? Do you know what's going on out there? And Job says, I repent in dust and ashes. You know, I, I realize that, God, no plan of yours can be thwarted. That's what he says in Job 42, 6. So there's another reference for you if you'd like to add to that first one. Second, something that we must affirm we cannot deny is that God is in control of every aspect of his creation. Ephesians 1, 11. Okay, so did you hear that? Who works out all things after the counsel of His will. So, it's not like God's got this this little mini-universe that He controls, and then there's other parts of the universe that, well, He, he can't really touch those things. He can't really have any, any um, say in those sorts of things because, you know, it might taint Him a little bit. No, He works out all things in conformity or after the purpose of His will. Psalm 33.15. Yeah, I think it probably just picked us up there in the middle of a verse. But, um, Or in the middle of a, um, a section there. So, verse 14, From His dwelling place He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and understands all their works. So he he has the ability to fashion the hearts. You know, Proverbs 22.1 thing says that the the king's hand is in the heart of the Lord and he turns it whatever way he wishes. That's including the the um, the unjust, the ungodly, the unbelieving king, as well. So um, God is in control of every aspect of His creation. Number three, God even ordains sinful acts, yet he still remains untainted by them. Exodus 4.21 The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, that I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Okay, so this is long before Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Because sometimes when we study through Exodus, we look at it and say, well, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And that's true. He hardened his heart. But long before that, God predicted or planned that he would harden. In fact, God says it this way, I will harden his heart. So, somehow he has control over the evil acts of men and yet remains untainted by them. That's Again, that's getting to the as close to the line of the problem of evil as we possibly can without fully understanding it. Number four, God is never blameworthy for that evil, but those who commit them are. So, in other words, when evil comes, we can't say, well, God, you're ultimately responsible for it in, in a way that makes you culpable. Uh, culpable. Um, instead, we are responsible for our own evil acts. James 1, 13 and 14. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempt he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and impact. Okay, so we can't blame it on God when we sin. God tempted me. You know, um, we we are drawn away by our own lusts and enticed. Eric. So the example with Pharaoh's hardening his heart, even though God hardened his heart, does Pharaoh still have the opportunity of choice not to 
Yeah, in other words, God planned that God planned and in some way stood behind that act, but Pharaoh was ultimately responsible for it because he did what his heart wanted to do. In other words, God wasn't saying, "Here, do something that you don't want to do." He's saying, "Here, I'm I'm kind of releasing the leash a little bit. Here you go. Do what you want to do." Okay, if I wanted you to pull you back, I would do it. But but here this is is similar to uh, Job with um, Satan. You know, Satan has all these things that he wants to do, but he has to get permission from God to do anything. And God kind of just releases the leash a little bit and says, here you go for a time. You can do everything, but just don't touch his health. And then you can do everything, but you just can't take his life. Um, And he does. He does exactly what he wants to do. God's not forcing Satan to do that in any way, just like he's not forcing. So so we've got to be careful with that sort of idea that planning has to do with or planning and forcing are the same things. Because we can't attribute evil to God. That's the thing. So how how that all works again, I don't understand fully. But but I do know that God Right. 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 Yeah, another example would be um, with the crucifixion of our Lord, right? The, the Romans and the Jews did exactly what they wanted to do. No one was twisting their arms saying, hey, listen, here's a back table deal, or, or backroom deal that we're going to do with you. Can you please take out the Savior so that God doesn't look bad? He's got to have redemption happen somehow. They do exactly what they want to do, and yet Acts 2 and Acts 4 say that God had predetermined that it would happen. He wasn't outside of God's control and saying, Oh, they they killed they killed my son. I, now I got to do something. No, he planned it long before the world was created that Jesus would die, and yet those people stand responsible for that death. Number five, God is holy, and He hates good. Or, I'm sorry, God is good and holy, and He hates evil. Habakkuk one thirteen. Okay, so anyone know what's going on here in Habakkuk? Habakkuk's a prophet uh, during the time of Judah, I think. Uh, J- Judah's rebelling against God. And and um, Habakkuk says to God, you know, how long are you going to let this evil go on within our nation? And God says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of it by judging all that evil, and I'm going to use Babylon to do it. And Habakkuk follows up in chapter 2, I think, and says, well, we understand you're taking care of the evil, but do you have to use someone more evil than us to do it? I mean, Babylon, they're, they're about as wicked as they come. And God says, listen, don't, don't, don't try to determine what's right and wrong for me. Okay, I'll do what I want to do. They'll eventually get their judgment. But I'm going to use them as my tool, my instrument, to bring about judgment on you. So here... This is at the beginning of the conversation. And he's saying, God, all this evil is going on in Judah, so how could you possibly allow it to happen? And his first statement is similar to what we're doing right here. He's affirming what he cannot deny, which is, God, you cannot look at evil. You can't allow this evil within your own nation to continue. So what are you going to do about it? This is his initial question, effectively. And God's going to respond by saying, I'm, I'm going to judge it. Just be patient. It's coming. Um, but it's coming in a way that you wouldn't expect. Now, by the end of the book, by the way, 
Habakkuk 3, he recognizes that God is right and what he's doing is right. Number six, God judges us. We do not judge God. It's similar to what uh, the end of the story of Habakkuk is. But would someone read uh, Romans 9, 19 to 21, whoever had that? Okay, God doesn't have he, he's, he doesn't have to give us an answer for why evil exists. Okay, but um, he, he doesn't have to explain all of his ways because he is God and he can reveal to us what he wants to reveal. But I think Romans chapter 9 comes the closest to answering the question fully. Turn, turn there because uh, it would be helpful just to see what's going on in the rest of the chapter. Romans chapter 9. Verse 9 says, For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, and she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for her, for through, uh, for though the twins were not yet born and ha- had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it is said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as, is, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. The idea there is, I have chosen Jacob, I have not chosen Esau. So here, here's the dilemma that, that Paul recognizes is going to come up in the minds of his readers, and that is, how could God choose one person over another? How could He choose someone to come to Christ long before they even are born and not choose another? And here he gives the example of Jacob and Esau and says, listen, when the twins were not even yet born, God had already made the choice. He had already spoken and said, listen, the older, he said to Rachel, or Rebecca, excuse me, the older will serve the younger. And why can he do that? Verse 13, because I've chosen him. And so how are we supposed to respond to that? Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Okay, so positive way of saying it. Okay, well, what we can't come to the conclusion of when God chooses Esau over Jacob is that God is unjust. We can't come to that conclusion. So verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God can choose whomever He pleases. Verse 16, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So it doesn't ultimately depend on us whether we come to Christ or not. Certainly we are called to do something, but the actual choosing comes from God. It's something that God has to do for us. It's God who has mercy. And then verse 17, for this Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very pers- purpose I raised you up. So, wicked Pharaoh, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And then here's what 
Sarah read here in verse 19. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? So if God chooses whomever he pleases, then how can you make anybody culpable? Right? How can you make anybody responsible for their own sin? And here's the response by Paul in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you to answer back to God? The, 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 the clay, the thing molded, will not say to the molder, hey, why'd you make me like this? Will it? That's not going to happen. No, it's the potter that has the right over the clay, verse 21, to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. And so here's, here's how he concludes. Verse 22, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from among the Jews but also from from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles so what if god chose to allow this evil to take place and his wrath to come down on that so that he could highlight his mercy in us when when you recognize that you have been chosen by god not because of anything that you have done not because of anything that you would have done but because of God's simple choice. I chose Jacob, not Esau. When you recognize that, that is humbling because you and I should be in the same place as the pagan who's not in church today. You know what that does for God? It highlights His mercy. So why all this evil? Here's one response that Paul gives. First of all, we can't say God is unjust. Right? That's what he says in verse 14. There is no injustice with God. We can't say that. And we can't talk back to God in the way that, hey, give us an answer. I mean, we're the clay. God can do with what us what He pleases. So, number seven, God wills evil for an ultimate good purpose, which we may not fully understand. Genesis 50:20. Okay, so again, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers who are, now that their father's dead, they think Joseph's going to take out vengeance um, on them. And so they make up this lie about, hey, you know, our, our dad said you, you need to treat us well and, and all this. And, and Joseph said, listen, what you did was not good. You intended it for harm, but God actually used it, didn't He? What did God use it for? What what great purpose came? What kind, What great... Um, action came out of the um, the betrayal of Joseph's brothers. Right? Yeah, you have... I mean, you have this great famine that comes in the land and you have Joseph being able to uh, raise the second in power in all of Egypt and then he's able to bring Israel back, obviously his family, and then they, they grow to millions of people over uh, several decades and centuries and... Um, and God used it to spare them. That that was the great act that God was working. Now, when, when Joseph's sitting in prison, he doesn't understand all these things, right? He doesn't understand why these evil things have taken place. And that's that's the nature of life for us. Now, for him, he actually got part of the answer at the end of his life. But we may actually die without the promise, without knowing why God 
did what he did. And uh, someday we, we, we will understand more fully, but, but certainly God is accomplishing good. So, God's ultimate purpose, next page, is not to provide happiness for man, but rather to glorify himself. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Sometimes man's happiness and God's purposes coincide, for example, for believers, right? God works all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. A lot of people quote that verse, just the beginning of the verse, and they say, God works all things together for good. Well, that's not true. God doesn't work all things together for good for unbelievers. You realize that? They actually are stored... They are actually having for them stored up the wrath of God. It's, it's not working together for good for them, and it will not for eternity. Okay? That, that is not for their good. But for those of us who believe, God is working everything together for His glory and our good. And while Scripture often doesn't give us an explanation for evil, but calls on us um, to simply trust God. Trust God that He is doing what is right. Um, the Scriptures do sometimes show how God has used evil to advance His purposes. Turn back to Romans chapter 3. God uses evil to advance His purposes. Here's a, an example. One of the greatest, if not the greatest paragraph in all the Bible, verses 21 to 26. And... You know what's happening here, so I'm not going to read the whole passage, but but basically we receive justification even though we deserve God's wrath. We've fallen short of God's glory. We've exchanged God's glory for a lie, for worshiping and serving the creatures rather than the Creator. And yet God somehow brings about, verse 25, displayed publicly as propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, one of the ways that God uses evil is to display His mercy and justice most clearly seen at the cross, right? I mean, how could God allow such a horrific act of evil to happen to His own Son? How could He do that? Well, here's part of the answer. He wanted to show His justice and mercy, that He could be both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. Second possibility for why God uses evil or how God uses evil is that um, He uses it to display His judgment on evil now and in the future. Um, I don't have time to turn to all these passages, but you know, one of the the best answers for the question, why does God allow evil to, to exist? You know, like come back, why are you allowing this? Why are you allowing these wicked people to continue? Why do you allow them to prosper? Why do you never come down on them in judgment? Why do you let them live their whole lives in wickedness and die that way? And the answer is, God is not allowing them to live in wickedness. God is storing up wrath for them for the day of judgment and He will bring on vengeance to them. So, these people who are committing injustices to you now or to our country or or to your family or whatever, they're not going to just be given a a blank slate when they get to the next life. God is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Third 
third possible good that comes from uh, a third example of good that comes from evil is redemption. Christ suffered on our behalf. Romans three again is a good example of that. Um, fourth, it actually shocks unbelievers to get their attention and promote change in their hearts. We as humans have a tendency to forget God when things are going well. And so God may use in the life of an unbeliever, think back to your own salvation experience. Okay, How did you come to Christ? Was it during a time of great um, pleasure and prosperity? Or was it a time of great searching, difficulty, um, danger, unknowns, doubt? Okay, that's often how God gets the, t- the attention of unbelievers. Now, He can get the attention of, of believers in other ways, or unbelievers in other ways. But, but here's one of the ways that God, one of the ways that God wakes people up to the fact that He is real and that there's something more to life. This is how my parents came to Christ. You've probably heard that a number of times. Uh, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but He uses pain as a megaphone to rouse a deaf world from complacency. This is. Uh, consistent with what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, listen, I allowed you to go through the wilderness experience um, because if I... and to to have to depend on me because otherwise, if you ate and were satisfied and you built your fine houses and you settled down and all your herds and flocks grew large and your silver and gold increased, you would have forgotten the Lord your God. In fact, that's, that's what they did. Oh, that's that's a common theme in Israel's history is as they start to get fat uh, in, in prosperity, they forget God. And God says, so that during those times of prosperity, you would say to yourself, my power and my strength have produced this wealth for me. But Moses reminds them, listen, remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gave you the ability to produce wealth. This is how God often works. He he allows pain to come for a period of time so that we um, wake up to the truth and the reality that that we must serve God. Number five, fifth good that comes out of evil is fatherly discipline of believers. Hebrews chapter 12. We've looked at that on Wednesday night. So here's the here's where we come down to in all this. Okay, we don't have all the answers, but here's what we're left with. We need to trust God. Okay, we need to trust God. If you didn't hear anything else or didn't nothing else really stuck, hear this. Okay, we, we don't know why evil exists, how it came into existence exactly. We don't know how it's all going to turn out. I mean, we have a general idea that, that God's going to win. But, but what we can do is trust God. And trust Him because He will vindicate Himself. Right? He, he's, he's already been seen as just and the justifier of the one who puts his faith in Jesus. Um, and God promises that in the future he will be totally vindicated and will be fully de- delivered. That is, everyone will know that God was right and just to do as he did. The proud will be brought low and the humble will be raised to greatness. Number two, this should encourage us never uh, that God will never abandon us. Romans 8 is a great passage to read and meditate on and memorize who shall separate us from the love of Christ, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. 
No, we are faced with death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so trust God. He's going to vindicate Himself and He will never abandon His children. And then thirdly, God will completely remove all the evil from the earth. This is the great hope that we have in the life to come. Revelation 21, 1-4 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So, Scripture doesn't give us all the answers that we want with regard to this philosophical problem of evil. But but we do know that God is just. God is good. That evil does exist. And somehow God's using evil to accomplish exactly what He wants. If you'd like to think more about this in, in detail, I recommend that you listen to uh, my sermon from July 10th, 2011 called The Basis for God's Plan for Evil. It's on our website, July 10th, 2011. Um, and I, I really go through the the, uh, the various responses that the Scriptures have for the problem of evil, and I do it in relationship primarily to our study in the book of Job at that time. Any questions or comments? We'll Bill? Go back to Esau and Jacob for a second. Yeah. In response to that, I would just uh, recommend that you look at Psalm 5 5 and consider that. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. So, in our kind of uh, politically correct Christianity, we often like to say, God hates the sin and he loves the sinner. And there is a sense in which God does love unbelievers. I mean, he pours out his common grace upon them, he provides for them an opportunity to be saved. But but here in Psalm 5 it says, you hate all who do iniquity. 
So that's saying more than that he hates the sin and loves the sinner. It sounds like he's saying he hates the sinner. Right. Exactly. So I don't know if that addresses... I mean, I take it as that Esau actually was hated by God. Well, I'm saying he didn't see he hated Esau until Esau was a full-grown man and there was a nation, and the nation was just... At that time, then he said, I hate Esau, but he gave the opportunity for him to do good, and he refused. Yeah. And and, uh, the third verse of Obadiah says, because of the hardness of his heart or the pride of his heart. Right. In other words, uh, Esau and the devil was one same as far as uh, what God hates. It was the pride of their heart. Yeah. And we could, we could we could go on for for hours, I'm sure. But Romans, the point of Romans nine is it's the choice that there was a choice before either of them were born. While they were still in the room womb, God had already told Rebecca, "I have chosen one, and I have not chosen the other." And that's the point of loving and hating in that sense. That that God hates Esau in the sense that He did not choose them, choose him, and He loves Jacob in the sense that He did choose him. So, all right. Well, we need to go. Um, so uh, if you have follow-up questions, I'd be happy to, to try to address them. I know this is a, a deep issue, as it seems like every single class we have in this series has been. All right, let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would not um, blaspheme You and attribute to You something uh, of evil that is not the case. We want to be clear about Your justice and Your mercy, and we also want to, to revel in it as we see You accomplish good through the evil that we experience and through the evil that we see in this life. So please help us to think rightly about these things so that we can glorify you with our lips and our lives and also so that we can help to be able to give an answer to other people who have similar questions. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.